This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome once more to the program. While talking about developing bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, we ended our last program with a mention of Tonglen. This is the practice of taking on others' suffering and giving them our happiness. For most of us, this probably seems crazy. We're keen to get rid of the suffering we already have, not take on more. And our happiness is never enough, never mind giving away what little we have. And as Trungpa Rinpoche says, we may worry this practice will lead us to actually landing up with more suffering and losing our happiness. But that won't happen because, as Rinpoche points out, what occurs to us is the result of our karma. He goes on to say, Other people do the practice with great expectation, with great hope. They think of a, f- of a friend who is ill, unhappy or otherwise suffering, and they visualize this friend during the meditation in the hope that they will remove the suffering. When they find it does not work, they lose hope and become disillusioned. This also is not what the practice is about. The point is to cherish other beings as important, rather than regarding oneself as important. So there's no need to have worry, fear or expectation. However, it's not true to say there's no result from the practice. In the immediate present, one is not able to bring happiness or remove suffering. But by doing this practice, one will gradually cease to cherish oneself over others. Instead, one will develop the wish to practice in order to benefit other beings, eventually leading to the ability to help beings, teach and train them in the Dharma and so forth. Consequently, one will be able to give them happiness and relieve them of suffering and offer them whatever qualities and abilities that one has. This is the relative bodhicitta. And that's Trungpa Rinpoche. Now, although he plays down any immediate result from the practice, it is also not impossible to get a pretty spectacular result from this practice. Lama Zopa in his book, The Door to Satisfaction, tells of one outcome that even he didn't expect. I have referred to this story before, but it's good to remember it, especially if, if you have some fears around Tonglen. Lama Zopa has many centers and students around the world, and so he used to travel a lot visiting them all, giving guidance and so on. On a visit to his Singapore center, one of his students came to him seeking advice for dealing with HIV. The student had tested positive and wanted to know what he could do about it. Lama Zopa advised him to practice Ton Lin. In due course, Lama Zopa went on his way, but when he visited Singapore again some months later, he was interested to know how his student was doing, so he asked to see him. The student told Lama Zopa that due to the Tonglen practice, he was completely free of the virus. As I said, 
Lama Zopa was surprised. He didn't give the student a practice as a cure for HIV, but to help him mentally and emotionally. Lama Zopa said he must have practiced very hard for a very long time. But no, said the student, although he had practiced so intensely that thinking of the suffering of beings, the tears had flowed down his face, he'd only practiced like that for a weekend. So you see, this practice doesn't increase one's suffering. It actually has the power to alleviate our suffering if we are totally sincere and committed to it. Judith Hill's poem, Wage Peace, has strong connotations of Tonglen. It goes like this. Wage peace with your breath. Breathe in firemen and rubble. Breathe out whole buildings and flocks of red-winged blackbirds. Breathe in terrorists and breathe out sleeping children and freshly mown fields. Breathe in confusion and breathe out maple trees. Breathe in the fallen and breathe out lifelong friendships intact. Wage peace with your listening. Hearing sirens, pray loud. Remember your tools, flower seeds, clothespins, clean rivers. Make soup, play music, learn the word for thank you in three languages. Learn to knit and make a hat. Think of chaos as dancing raspberries. Imagine grief as the outbreath of beauty or the gesture of fish. Swim for the other side. Wage peace. Never has the world seemed so fresh and precious. Have a cup of tea and rejoice. Act as if armistice has already arrived. Celebrate today. And now, before we continue, let's set our motivation as we usually do. Let's direct all our positive energy from this program to gaining enlightenment so we can best benefit ourselves and all other living beings. Thank you. The famous Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, whose commentary on the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life we used extensively in previous programs, gives a beautiful teaching on Ton Lin in the Shambhala website. Of course, you can go to www.shambhala.org to read it for yourself, but it's so lovely and so relevant that I'm going to read it here on the program. She starts by saying that to have compassion for others, we must have compassion for ourselves. In particular, she says, to care about other people who are fearful, angry, jealous, overpowered by addictions of all kinds, arrogant, proud, miserly, selfish, mean, you name it. To have compassion and to care for these people means not to run from the pain of finding these things in ourselves. In fact, one's whole attitude towards pain can change. Instead of fending it off and hiding from it, one could open one's heart and allow oneself to feel that pain, feel it as something that will soften and purify us and make us far more loving and kind. The Tonglen practice is a method for connecting with suffering, ours and that which is all around us, everywhere we go. It's a method for overcoming fear of suffering and for dissolving the tightness of our heart. Primarily, it's a method for awakening the compassion that is inherent in all of us, no matter how cruel or cold we might seem to be. We begin the practice by taking on the suffering of a person we know to be hurting and who we wish to help. For instance, if you know of a child who is being hurt, you breathe in the wish to take away all the pain and fear of that child. Then as you breathe out, you send the child happiness, joy, or whatever, whatever would relieve their pain. This is the core of the practice, 
breathing in others' pain so that they can be well and have more space to relax and open, and breathing out, sending them relaxation or whatever you feel would bring them relief and happiness. However, we often cannot do this practice because we come face to face with our own fear, our own resistance, anger, or whatever our personal pain, our, er our personal stuckness happens to be at that moment. At that point, you can change the focus and begin to do Tonglen for what you are feeling and for millions of others just like you who are at that very moment of time feeling exactly the same stuckness and misery. Maybe you're able to name your pain. You recognize it clearly as terror or revulsion or anger or wanting to get revenge. So you breathe in for all the people who are caught with that same emotion and you send out relief or whatever opens up the space for yourself and all those countless others. Maybe you can't name what you're feeling, but you can feel it, a tightness in the stomach, a heavy darkness or whatever. Just contact what you're feeling and breathe in. Take it in for all of us and send out relief to all of us. People often say that this practice goes against the grain of how we usually hold ourselves together. Truthfully, this practice does go against the grain of wanting things on our own terms, of wanting it to work out for ourselves, no matter what happens to the others. The practice dissolves the armor of self-protection we've tried so hard to create around ourselves. In Buddhist language, one would say that it dissolves the fixation and clinging of ego. Tonglen reverses the usual logic of avoiding suffering and seeking pleasure, and in the process, we become liberated from the very ancient prison of selfishness. We begin to feel love, both for ourselves and others, and also we begin to take care of ourselves and others. It awakens our compassion, and it also introduces us to a far larger view of reality. It introduces us to the unlimited spaciousness that Buddhists call shunyata. By doing the practice, we begin to connect with the open dimension of our being. At first, we experience this as things not being such a big deal or so solid as they seem before. Tonglen can be done for those who are ill, those who are dying or have just died, or for those who are in pain of any kind. So on the spot you can do Tonglen for all the people who are just like you, for everyone who wishes to be compassionate but instead is afraid, for everyone who wishes to be brave but instead is a coward. Rather than beating yourself up, use your own stuckness as a stepping stone to understanding what people are up against all over the world. Breathe in for all of us and breathe out for all of us. Use what seems like poison as medicine. Use your personal suffering as the path to compassion for all beings. And here's a story from the website shambhalasun.com about putting Tong Lin into practice. It's by Emily Strasser, who writes and edits the Pushcart Journal and is on the editorial board for the Penn American Journal. She writes, Ten years ago, a young Tibetan monk, Jamyang, sat outside his room in Dharamsala reading about the Tonglen practice. The day was sunny, and above him the clouds played in the mountain peaks. From the Tibetan words Tong to give and Len to take, Tonglen describes a meditation in which the practitioner visualizes breathing in the suffering of the world in the form of thick black smoke 
and breathing out his own joy and comfort as clear and luminous air. When Jamyang looked up from his reading, he noticed three Indian boys in ragged clothes picking food out of a rotting garbage pile. The next day, Jamyang cooked a large lunch and shared his food with the boys. Over simple daily meals of rice and dal, Jamyang and the boys formed an unlikely friendship. They took Jamyang down to the Charan slum in Lower Dharamsala, where their families lived in temporary shelters made of bamboo poles covered in plastic sheeting. Jamyang was shocked to see the children, without even garbage to eat, were dying of malnutrition and diarrhea. The slum had no sanitary facilities. Alcohol abuse, disease and domestic violence were rife. Himachal Pradesh, the fertile mountainous state with a growing economy, is home to more than 10,000 internally displaced people, driven from their homes in Rajasthan, Maharashtra and Uttar Pradesh by environmental degradation and economic changes that have made their previous livelihoods unsustainable. They come to Dharamsala with its thriving Tibetan exile community and a steady stream of tourists to maintain the winding mountain roads, haul cement for new guest houses, fix the hiking boots of foreign trekkers and beg. Many families move seasonally to follow the festive and tourist seasons. Jamyang immediately began collecting food, medicine and clothing. He took people to the hospital. Yet he soon realized that addressing the material needs of the people was not sustainable. The Tonglen Charitable Trust was registered in India in 2005 with a goal of supporting internally displaced people in the region by combating the root causes of poverty, focusing primarily on education for the children. The local government school is free, but child beggars provide an essential source of income for many families. Children enrolled in school attended only sporadically because their families moved so frequently. In 2005, Tonglen set up a hostel near the slum to house school-aged children, provide meals, supervision and academic support. That first year, there were just 10 kids. In November 2012, a new hostel building was inaugurated by the Dalai Lama and Tonglen now houses about 90 children between the ages of 7 and 16, divided equally between boys and girls. Jamyang hopes that after the children graduate and find jobs, they will return to help their communities. The four oldest students are in 10th class and will graduate in two or three years. They are some of the top students in the state. Emily Strasser continues, The Tonglen meditation scares me. I do not want to take the black smoke into my body. I'm afraid to give away my own happiness. Stories like Jamyang's also scare me. When we allow ourselves to really see people and feel true compassion, we may never be able to turn away again. How much can we afford to let in? Jamyang did not ask himself that question when he shared his lunch with the slum kids on that first afternoon. His hair has begun to go grey at 37, but his smooth face creases only at the eyes when he smiles. We're sitting in his bare concrete office. The only decorations are a painting of Mother Teresa and a photograph of the Dalai Lama hung above his desk, both draped in katas, white Tibetan blessing scarves. I tell Jamyang about my fear of the Tonglen meditation. 
I ask him how he does not become overwhelmed by the endless need he sees around him, by the limits of his ability to relieve that suffering. As I'm speaking, Jamyong nods and punctuates my words with yeah, 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 as if he's heard it all before. The important thing is we have the desire to help all, he tells me. We cannot do as we are thinking, but we need to act as much as we can. But Jamyang does not really want to talk about this. He admits that while he occasionally attends prayers in the Dalai Lama's temple, he does not meditate. He would rather tell me about his hopes to expand health and education programs to the more than three dozen other displaced communities in the region. He has moved from his quiet quarters in Upper Dharamsala to a room near the hostel in Lower Dharamsala. For Jamyang, his work is his prayer and meditation, as constant for him as a breath. When I visit the girls' hostel, I'm greeted by high clipped voices. Good morning, madam. Small hands lead me to a chair. The girls wear worn but clean clothes, and their hair is oiled and tightly braided. They stand up one by one to tell me their names, ages, and aims. They want to be doctors, scientists, and engineers. I can't keep the smile off my face as they show me around their hostel, tugging at my elbows, proudly pointing out their bright, clean bunk beds. The staff of Tonglen, a mixture of Indians and Tibetans, can tell you how many children, families and communities they serve. Every year they must make difficult decisions about which children the hostel can take. What they cannot count are the infinite needs of all those they are unable to help. Neither can they count the immeasurable effect of their compassion. My aim is astronaut, says 12-year-old Punam, the quietest girl in the room. When I leave the hostel, gently untangling myself from the small fingers and high voices of the children who have come from nothing but aim high, I feel lighter. Now that's where the practice of Tong Len can lead us if we allow it to. Of course it can be scary, but as Jamyang says, we think big, but have to act within our capacity. The thing is that thinking big helps our capacity to grow. And so, for instance, while the current Tonglen facility caters for only 90 kids, why shouldn't Jamyang's dream of helping the other displaced communities not also become reality? Now, I guess, we should get back to the text we are actually supposed to be going through in this program, Lama Tungkapa's Three Principal Aspects of the Path. We got a bit sidetracked by Tong Len because of the second aspect, bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. Tong Len is a practice associated with bodhicitta, helping to increase our caring for others and decrease our selfish concern for ourselves. And because Lama Zopa Rinpoche recommends we do Tong Len at death time as it's driven by bodhicitta, we got a bit sidetracked in the program. Never mind, it's all good. And in my meditation classes, people are always ready to do Tonglen practice, so we haven't wasted any time. But now back to the discussion on bodhicitta itself. We got on to death because Tupton children, and please don't confuse her with Pema children, like I've done in the past, listed one of the benefits of bodhicitta as preparing us for death. If you remember, she said that at death time, our wisdom is most important. That is the realization of the nature of reality, impermanence and emptiness and so on. The spur to gaining wisdom, in her opinion, is bodhicitta, wanting to continue developing the bodhicitta practice in coming lives. This helps us let go 
and not cling to the things of this life, a clinging that will bring us lots of unhappiness at death time and beyond. She says, Having our minds so well trained in compassion that when we die there's no regret, there's no fear, there's a feeling of rejoicing, a feeling of fulfillment, a feeling of trust. When we do the bodhicitta meditations and see the kindness of others, we begin to trust them more. We stop being so self-centered and worrying neurotically about ourselves. This enables us when we die, we just let go into the next life. It's not a big sweat. So preparing us for death is one thing, and then another is that bodhicitta protects us from depression and despair. She says, You know how it is when you watch the six o'clock news and get filled with despair. You try to do something, but you feel discouraged. It just seems like everything is going wrong. Bodhicitta gives us a sense of hope and optimism. People ask why that is so. They say, a bodhisattva who has compassion for everybody must get so depressed thinking about everybody's suffering. Doesn't contemplate everybody's suffering just make you more depressed? I don't want to meditate on bodhicitta. I have enough problems with my own suffering. I don't want to think about others. But the way in which we think about others' suffering when we're trying to generate bodhicitta is very different because a bodhisattva has a background of the three principal aspects of the path and the Four Noble Truths. The bodhisattva knows that all phenomena are empty of true existence. When you know, at least on an intellectual level, that everything does not exist in the way that it appears, that things lack their own inherent essence, you see that even suffering lacks an inherent essence. You see that sentient beings that are obnoxious lack the inherent essence of being obnoxious, believe it or not. Yes, the guy you think is the biggest jerk in the world does not have an inherent essence of jerkness or obnoxiousness. This is just something that we label according to circumstances, but that's not the essence of the person. A bodhisattva may see a sentient being suffer, but knows the suffering comes from causes and that the chief cause is ignorance. The Bodhisattva knows that ignorance can be eliminated by generating the wisdom that realizes the emptiness or inherent essence of phenomena. So in that way, a Bodhisattva sees that suffering is not predetermined. It's not an inherent given. It's not something that has to happen. It only happens because there are causes and conditions. If we change the causes and conditions, then the suffering doesn't come. If we eliminate the ignorance, which is the root of the suffering, the suffering is not going to happen. She says that even an intellectual understanding of the nature of reality gives bodhisattvas hope. They see that even when beings are suffering, these beings can change. We all have Buddha nature, even the worst of us, and so the causes for suffering can be eliminated. Therefore, she maintains, a bodhisattva has a lot of optimism and doesn't get depressed when seeing or thinking about other people's suffering. Of course, the Bodhisattva is not immune to the suffering and will commiserate, but doesn't get all depressed and hopeless because the situation can be changed. And the Bodhisattvas take that responsibility and do something according to their own ability, she says. They do not just sit around and go, Oh, I'm just a lowly Bodhisattva. There's so much suffering and I can't really help. I wish the Buddha would help them more. A Bodhisattva rises to the challenge and does what is possible, even though it may not be as comprehensive as the actions of a Buddha. 
when we help in this way, Tipton Children says, it can transform our outlook on life, how we see our experience and what is going on in the world. I've heard of His Holiness the Dalai Lama acting in this way when he is met Tibetans who has escaped from Tibet. I understand such refugees almost always get an audience with His Holiness and he's often moved to tears by the stories of their hardships. At one teaching in Bodhgaya, His Holiness had been very busy giving teachings, consulting with monks, giving interviews, meeting people and so on. At one time he was returning to his rooms when a group of refugee Tibetans asked to see him. As I heard it, he was very tired, but stopped to talk with them. Their stories were so hard that he burst into tears while listening to them. He, of course, did what he could to help them, but he couldn't solve all their problems, and when I saw him some time later, he was all smiles and laughter, as he usually is. We might think he was being callous, but that would be misreading the situation. His Holiness knew that nothing would be gained by taking the Tibetans' hardships away with them and becoming solemn and sad. That would solve nothing and only make others worry about him and also become miserable. So he left the sadness behind and returned to his usual optimistic cheerfulness which would inspire all the other people he had to deal with during that day. And as Tupton Children says, everything is in the nature of change. So it's not as if those Tibetans' lives would necessarily always be filled with hardship. Like all of us, they would have to contend with their karma, whatever that turned out to be, and that would not be averted because His Holiness carried out around a long face. It was a good example for me of how one can let go without being indifferent to suffering. There's no point in getting depressed by others' suffering, even if we can't help them. If we do get miserable, then there are two people moping around the world where there was only originally one. In other words, we just make the world a sadder place. As Shantideva says, if something can be done, then there's no reason for misery. And if nothing can be done, there's also no reason for misery. In the first case, we do what must be done. And in the second, we just have to move on. And at least we can keep a cheerful mind and face in either case. Many of the Tibetan Buddhist teachings are on how to develop a positive attitude in adverse circumstances so that we are not overwhelmed by our own or others' sufferings. I think this is so important. It's so easy to get miserable when our expectations are not met or when we encounter obstacles to what we want to accomplish. If we then let our minds dwell on our misery, it's easy to fall into a long-lasting depression and that makes everyone suffer, not only the one who is depressed. I once had a gay flatmate who became the partner of a man with a history of depression, but who was irregular about taking his medication. At first the relationship seemed to go well, but my flatmate, who cared very much for his partner, started worrying about the partner's deflated attitude towards himself and the world. Then one day my flatmate walked into his partner's flat and found he had hanged himself. It was devastating and my flatmate took a long time to come to terms with what had happened, and I imagine that the dead man's family did as well. Would the development of Bodhicitta have helped the depressed man? I think it would certainly have put a break on the intention to kill himself, and perhaps it could have helped him keep the depression at bay, and it may have given him some insight into how his misery was affecting those around him. 
Anyway, I hope I haven't depressed you with this story, although I'll have to leave you with it as our time is up. Please dedicate any positive potential we've developed from the program to the enlightenment of all beings. Thank you, have a good week, and I hope you'll join me for our next program in this series. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.